Hey Cornerstone, I hope all of you are doing well. I'm excited to be here this morning just to spend time with you opening up God's Word together and wrestling through just what we're going to be doing in our 100 days together. Now last week I asked you, I asked you two questions. First I asked you who do you want to be and the second question I asked you was who do we want to be in 100 days? What's interesting is that those are questions that we and others have been asking since we were, we were pretty young. I remember when I was a kid, each year they would ask us, you know, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know if you remember that, but we wanted to be police officers and firemen, teachers and veterinarians, nurses and doctors. And whether we knew it or not, we had a vision of what it meant to be like a, a fulfilled and a flourishing human being, at least in our heads. From early on, we were on the path, I think, and, and this is the way I'd put it, we were kind of in search of the good life. Now, my vision of the good life when I was young was to be a professional athlete. I wanted to be Terry Bradshaw, Pete Rose, or Julius Irving, Dr. J. What they had, at least in my mind, was the good life. If I could just be them, I would be a fulfilled and, and flourishing person. However, I had a huge problem. I couldn't throw a football like Terry Bradshaw, I couldn't hit a baseball like Pete Rose, and I definitely couldn't jump out of the gym like Dr. J. Now, and now it wasn't from lack of effort, it was because that wasn't how God designed me. The first dream of mine to drop in my life was baseball. The second was football, and finally, somewhere in high school, I knew that basketball, after realizing I couldn't even be Larry Bird, probably wouldn't be in my future. I was left asking that question, kind of, who do I want to be now? Have you ever noticed that we never stop asking that question? As each dream in life dies, we're placed back into the blender of an internal crisis. We ask the question after high school and college. We ask in singleness and marriage. We, we ask it in our midlife and at retirement. And as we graduate from life at death, I've watched as so many people ask, who was I supposed to be? really and I think even sitting here right now whether you know it or not you're asking who do I want to be yet the the ultimate question is not who do I want to be <clears throat> but who does God want me to be if he made me and knows how I can be a truly fulfilled and flourishing human being I want to know what he says now, what if I told you that ultimately who God wants you to be is a worshiper of Him? In fact, we were made in His image. We were designed to reflect Him and His character. And when we reflect Him in His character, that is worship. We'll explore this idea more in a few minutes, but for now, know that at our core, we were made to worship God. That is who we were created to be. However, our, our primary problem is that we possess a disposition to create rhythms and practices in our lives that worship ourselves and other things. All humanity, Romans 125, has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We're fallen and, and live in a fallen world, hence our, our, our twisted disposition. And this tendency to worship wrong things is why we have to keep asking, who do I want to be now? We define ourselves as baseball players or football players or basketball players or you, you fill in the blank. 
We make those things our pursuit or what we worship, but they never satisfy our longing to worship something, something greater. After we see the emptiness of making those non-God dreams the focus of our worship, we're, we're forced, forced to ask just once again, who do I want to be now? However, we won't figure out who we want to be until we determine who we desire to worship. All of humanity, including you and me, are searching to find the suitable object of our worship. But as worshipers, we will never be satisfied with who we are until our worship finds its home in God alone. And when our worship finds its home, hearts that are cold can be rekindled. And I want that for us. So let's ask a new question this week. Now, it builds from the question we kept asking last week. But if God has created us to be worshipers, then how do we develop a rhythm in our lives of worshiping God and worshiping God alone? Well, let me start by just letting the cat out of the bag. Jesus in John 4.24 tells us how we are to do this. And here it is. We must worship God in spirit and in truth. So that's the answer. However, let me see if I can kind of explain what Jesus meant a little bit by a little bit better by telling you the story from which this answer came in John 4. In these verses, Jesus takes us on a journey to answer the question we are asking of how do we create rhythms of worship towards God alone? By by engaging in a conversation with, well, maybe let's call her a disreputable woman. Let's go back to the beginning. John 4, 4 through 6, and get the flow. So look with me at John 4, and look at verse 4. He says this, And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well as it was about the sixth hour or noon. Now, before we meet the scandalous woman who comes to the well, you have to understand who the Samaritans were. They were the remnant of the, of the northern Jewish kingdom who had intermarried with foreigners after their leaders had been carried away into captivity in 729 BC. To the Jews, they were insultingly kind of called half-breeds. They had built a place of worship separate from Jerusalem on Mount Gerizim and they rejected all of the Old Testament except their version of the first five or so books of Moses. The animosity they had with the Jews was deep, and it was centuries old. Now, like Jesus always did, however, he just walked right into the ancient hostility, sat down, and asked verse 7 for a drink of water. Now, the reason he asked for a drink of water becomes more apparent later but the woman at the well was obviously amazed that Jesus, a dignified Jewish man, would speak to her, a disreputable Samaritan woman. It would have been similar maybe to like a, a reputable Caucasian man doing something like this with a disreputable African-American woman in the deep south of the United States in the, in the era of Jim Crow. It would have been appalling. And this shocking request from Jesus is why the lady asked in verse 9, now watch this, this is what she says to him. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? 
if you question from the start why Jesus was talking about getting a drink from this woman, what you need to know is that Jesus never did anything without a purpose. Everything in his life was always an object lesson towards something greater. And now that he had the woman's attention, Jesus began to move to the greater. Yet instead of answering her directly, Jesus shifted the focus of her amazement. And this is what he said in verse 10. Listen to this. He said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus told her that the really amazing thing is that she is not asking him, the one who created her, for living water. Now, the water he was offering wasn't like magical or something like that. Living water was simply fresh water, like like in a stream. What made this water so powerful was that it was from Jesus. In other words, if she really knew who he was and the purpose for which he created her to worship him, she would have never asked that question. Now, we should give her some slack here because her background had not made her the best candidate for understanding who he was or who she was created to be. But we learn throughout the gospel that one's background or or position in life is never the key. Even the great Jewish teacher, Nicodemus, didn't recognize Jesus at first in the chapter before this one. But Jesus always could move the conversation to get to the point. And almost like a Jedi Knight leading the unsuspecting listener along, the woman, still a little bit confused, simply asked this in verses 11-12. Watch this. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, even as his sons did in his livestock. Now stop and think about what Jesus is doing here. He found an ordinary, everyday reality, water, but turned it towards what was most important. She may not have been on the the same page with Jesus at all at this point, But Jesus was just kind of nudging her closer to being so. To the Jews and Samaritans, Jacob was was almost as big as you could get. She was prodding him to find out if, if he was even more significant than Jacob. To flip our question around a little bit, she was asking Jesus, Who are you supposed to be? So Jesus, as he always did, bumped her a little closer to quenching her genuine thirst. Now, now you can see this. Look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The amazing thing is not just that Jesus could give her water without a bucket, but the water he provides takes away thirst forever. It's a thirst in everyone, whether whether we know it or not, to understand who God is and, and who we are. It's an insatiable thirst. Even more, it will turn her into a spring that brings eternal life to both herself and to others. He was slowly helping her 
to home in on who he was so that she could be who God meant her to be. So is it any wonder that then she exclaims, verse 15, watch this. She said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. In other words, give me some of that, please. Now, what's interesting was like a master angler, Jesus coaxed the woman into taking the bait. All of the interaction around the water was merely the, the enticement to open her mouth to her heart like a, like a fish gulping in a lure. But now with, with the hook set, he was ready to put his finger on what was keeping her from receiving this real life he was offering her. She was asking, who do I want to be? But Jesus was asking her the ultimate question about who he intended her to be. And Jesus put his finger on what was probably the most painful aspect of her life. He tells her, verse 16, I want you to go and I want you to get your husband. But why? Well, in verse 18, we find out that she had been married five times and was now living with another man. With each marriage, you know she had hopes of like finally living as a fulfilled and flourishing woman. She kept drawing from a well in life that always left her thirsty. And no person will ever quench a longing that, that, that only God can. With each failed marriage, she was forced to ask again and again, who do I want to be now? With each cycle of hope followed by failure, she was obviously becoming disenchanted and hurt. And so, like Jesus often did, he lovingly went right to the point of the most significant pain. But why? Well, because the quickest way to find the thing other than God that we worship is most often through a wound we've had for a long time. Now, I want you to catch the universal reflex of any person trying to avoid dealing with this kind of pain. First, she has to concede, verse 19, that Jesus, he ain't ordinary. In fact, she says to him, you're a prophet. Sadly, instead of dealing with her misplaced worship, causing failure over and over again in her life, she tried to change the subject on Jesus into a religious debate. Now, I want you to see this. Look at verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus had found her pressure point, but she did not want him meddling there. She tried to misdirect his painful touch by saying, sure, I, I, yeah, I've had five husbands and I'm, I'm currently in an adultery, but what's your view of, of where people should worship? <laughs> it's as if somehow that was her actual problem. Now I say that because over the last few months, we have felt the painful touch of God in different ways. We too have had that, that universal reflex of, of changing the subject. Therefore, our tendency has often been to avoid looking at the wounds of our, of our misplaced worship. Instead, we've kind of looked outside of our lives to identify the hurt. It's, it's President Trump or Governor Newsom's fault. It's the reality of losing our rights because we live in commie California. It's the blight of systemic racism. It's the fear and lack of, of courage of the leaders in my church. Or maybe it's some of the simplest things, right? Like the vanity of seeing your feet in desperate need of a pedicure, or your gray roots starting to, to show, or the countless pounds you put on in such a short time. But what if Jesus is right now putting his finger not on the obvious decay of society, 
but on our tenderest wounds that are in desperate need of his healing touch. And what if our wounds reveal those places in our lives as worshipers where our worship is misplaced towards idols? What if in our fear and anger and disappointment and frustration and pride, God is trying to identify for us idols that keep us from truly enjoying him? What if we can't figure out who we are supposed to be because our worship hasn't found its rightful place in God and God alone? This detrimental reflex we we have towards dealing with our places of pain that reveal our idolatry is exactly why we need to take the next 100 days to wholeheartedly pursue Christ together. I believe that as you and I quit, quit focusing on all the problems around us of our fallen world, and just and just fix our gaze on Christ, we could begin to see that the great physician is offering us the opportunity to deal with all of the pain and pride and sin that has resulted from our misplaced worship. You see, when the pandemic and social unrest finally move right to the, to the rearview mirror of our lives, our misplaced worship will still be right there. Sure, we, we could try to find another culprit that we believe has caused the pain, But still, we would only be missing the amazing opportunity we've been given to address idols that are receiving the worship that can only find its home in God. This misplaced worship left this this precious Samaritan woman and it will leave us just simply thirsting for more. Now this is why Jesus said to her in verse 21, watch this. Woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, it isn't the location that determines worship. Whether we worship in a building or a parking lot or the backyard of a home, worship is not merely an external act that you can accomplish by simply going to the right place. In fact, only going to a particular location is completely insufficient. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8, This people, they, they honor me with their lips, but, but their heart is far from me. Vain do they worship me. Jesus responded in essence saying that religious quarrel is only a smokescreen that is keeping you from becoming a worshiper of the one your heart longs to worship. You see, worship as defined by God and not by us is first and foremost the expression of a worshiper who has had an encounter of the heart with the true God. Fellowship without the transformed heart that that seeks more transformation is simply just an, an exercise in futility. Songs without the right heart are worthless. Sermons and worship services that don't come from the heart of flesh are are hollow in God's eyes. If we meet as a church without hearts made new, seeking more renewal, It's simply like putting lipstick on a pig to God. So Jesus basically said to the woman, look, don't don't get hung up in pointless debates. When it comes to worship, who you are as a worshiper and the one to whom you direct your worship is vastly more important than where you worship. And when it comes to developing a rhythm of worship in our lives, it begins with this heart that is just ready to be rekindled. However, and this is important, it's more than the heart. People every day sincerely worship just the wrong things. Like look with me at verse 22 and you'll kind of see Jesus working through this. 
He says to her, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Eventually the time comes when you have to acknowledge that biblical worship is true worship, but hers, hers was false. What she was worshiping would never save her. As I've observed so many that I love during our, our time of COVID, my heart has grown sad watching as we scream and yell for salvation from wrong things. Whoever our president is, let me just say this again, that person will never save us. A better economy will never save us. People waking up to the seriousness or lack of severity of this virus won't save us. The venue in which we worship will never save us. In fact, our infatuation with those things might just be the problem. I believe that God is tearing down our idols this time that we think will save us so that only He, the true and only Savior, remains. All, all these other saviors that we cling to, that we believe will restore these fulfilling and flourishing lives to us, God is graciously pulverizing them as false saviors. And He's doing it for our good because He loves us. Now this precious woman's knowledge of God was, was let's just say, incomplete at best. As a worshiper, her worship was misdirected, which, which made her worship false. And to tell her so was as loving as telling a person with heart disease to exercise and eat right. God does not allow us to set the terms of our worship. And if we're going to develop rhythms in the life of worshiping God alone over the next 100 days, we must continuously hone our understanding of, of who God is. We must worship, look at this, verse 23, we must worship in spirit and in truth, catch that last part, in truth. That is the worshiper that God wants us to be. However, it's more than transform hearts and a true perspective of God. Jesus says in verse 23, these, these true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now some believe this means worship the Father like, like in the Holy Spirit. But I think he was telling her where worship must come from which is her spirit within. We must meet God, who is spirit, where he is on his terms. And where he meets us is in spirit. But, but, but what does that mean? Well, in John 3, 6, Jesus connects God's spirit and our spirit. He said to Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit, he says this, is spirit. In other words, until the Holy Spirit touches our spirit with the flame of new life, there will be no ignition of passion for him. Only that which is born of the Spirit can have that kind of life. If you have never bent the knee to King Jesus, trusting, surrendering, and swearing allegiance to him alone, you don't have the Spirit. And if you don't have the Spirit the next 100 days, as hard as you may try, you will never find yourselves in God's presence and pathway. And, John 15, if you don't continue to abide in Christ so that your spirit is renewed day by day, your heart will simply slowly become more and more calloused and cold towards being in God's presence. So apart from God's Spirit, engaging regularly with our spirit, we cannot become true worshipers. Together, the words spirit and truth mean 
that real worship, what we were created to do, comes from the Spirit interacting with and engaging our spirit, and it's based on a growing understanding of God as He has revealed Himself. Worship devoid of these two realities, it'll only fail. These are God's terms for being in His presence and on His path. This is where we will encounter, and only where we will encounter, Him to be transformed in these next 100 days. Now, listen to me as we finish. God designed you and I to be worshipers of only Him. And when our worship finds its home in God alone, we flourish, no matter our circumstances. Our problem is that every day our worshiping hearts have this, this tendency to wander to other shiny objects. Our, our, our love and our loyalty gets misdirected towards that which can never satisfy the, the thirsting of our souls. This is why we must regularly be brought back to the place in which God designed us to be most satisfied in Him. That is what these 100 days are designed to do. I pray that already in these last few days as you've read the truths of Scripture under the illumining power of the Holy Spirit and prayed that you will have found yourself worshiping God, our greatest treasure, on His terms in spirit and in truth. And may the beauty of Christ and the promise of being shaped into His image energize and revitalize you. God bless you in the remaining 92 days as we pursue Christ together in spirit and in truth. Love y'all.